Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. Technology has transformed nearly every aspect of our lives, from the way we get news and information, to the ways we communicate with each other, pay our bills, and shop for groceries online. And it's the reason why you're listening to this podcast. But these technological innovations don't benefit everyone equally. Not everyone has access to the internet, digital devices like laptops and smartphones, and training to learn to use these technologies. And this creates a sort of digital divide. As technology continues to advance, so too does the divide, and it helps create even greater disparities along socioeconomic and racial lines. The promise of broadband internet is still elusive for many Americans, either due to cost or poor to non-existent high-speed service in rural areas. Millions of students nationwide falling behind in what's being called a homework gap, meaning kids who don't have access to the Internet and can't access virtual classrooms. The digital divide in our state has never been wider. For children who need to go online, they obviously need to do their schoolwork. Their zip code is now determining their access to their education. It doesn't have to be this way. Right now, we're at a pivotal moment. The government, nonprofit, and private sectors have a real opportunity to not only help bridge the digital divide, but to ensure that technological advances can contribute to broader prosperity for residents and for cities as a whole. But let's start at the beginning. What exactly is this digital divide, and why should it be on cities' radars? The National Digital Inclusion Alliance, they talk about the three-legged stool of the digital divide. So that's having access to broadband internet, having access to devices that can use the internet, and then digital literacy skills. That's Elena Stern, a data science fellow at the Urban Institute who thinks a lot about the intersection of cities, technology, and equity. I think... What we're seeing is that there was sort of an initial excitement around smart cities and sort of a technology first conceptualization of smart cities. So, you know, I heard a lot in my research a desire to move away from this sort of technology first vantage point to a problem first vantage point. Recently, some cities have realized the drawbacks of quickly adopting new technologies without making sure that all their residents can access and benefit from them. One reason why the technology-first approach can be ineffective is we see these underlying structural divides that can make the benefits of technology inequitably shared. And so if cities take this technology-first approach and say, oh, great, we you know, bring all of our services online and we just assume that it will benefit everyone, well, we actually see that that could reinforce equity along the fault lines of the digital divide where those who don't have access to the internet can't benefit from these sort of new government services or these new programs. And then that compounds these existing inequities. So I think that's one example where really taking that problem first approach saying, well, you know, what is the problem in the community and how can technology be part of the solution to solve that problem is really the right way to go. In cities, the fault lines of the digital divide often fall along existing racial and economic inequities and make them worse. Recognizing the problem for the residents, cities are now moving away from this so-called technology-first approach. 
Now she's thinking, well, how can we make sure that residents are getting the most value out of this technology and specifically making sure that that value is equitably shared across all segments of the city and all segments of the community? And I think that doesn't just happen on accident, that that really only happens when cities are really intentional about baking equity into every step of the process in terms of designing, deploying and evaluating technologies. So when we talk about equity and tech, Elena describes how it can play out in multiple ways. I've been thinking about equity and something I've heard in some of my interviews is, you know, thinking about both procedural equity, distributional equity, and structural equity. And, you know, that procedural equity, thinking about whose voices are being heard when we define the problem, when we identify the solution and making sure that that is an open and inclusive process. I think with distributional equity, that's a real equity of access. So making sure that the costs and benefits of technology are equitably shared across all segments of the city and really prioritizing the needs of disadvantaged populations. But then I think that structural equity piece is really where the specific local context is critical because it requires us to acknowledge the history and the context and the policies that created the structural divides and inequities that we see in the first place and how those inequities can compound on itself over time. Chief equity officers, chief innovation officers and chief technology officers are now being tasked with advancing equity in their cities and specifically the relationship between equity and technology. I spoke with Gary Brantley, the chief information officer of Atlanta, to learn what the digital divide looks like in Atlanta. When you look at it first, I, I, you can't become what you can't see, right? And so I've started to really understand that. And so, you know, a quick example is, you know, I can walk into a, a urban setting with uh, not much education and in some cases the same type of perceived education and say, what is a CIO? And, you know, you'll get two hands raised inside of that auditorium full of 500 kids. I'll go to a, a, a wealthy area, have that same conversation. I would say 90 percent of the kids in the room know exactly what it was. And so, you know, the digital divide is also around information as well. And a lot of these kids and a lot of these adults can't imagine what they want to be without seeing it. So you have the, the access and the hardware component that we talked about, right? The connectivity component that has to be there. But you can't just put that there. And it's not just access that's important, but the literacy, the know-how. If you were my friends and needed some help making rent, I could send that money to you directly in seconds, right? Presumably because you have a bank account and you have uh, digital financial tools available to you. But if you were not, how would we do that in a safe and timely manner? Just having it and being able to afford it is one thing, but understanding its value is also critically important, right? And understanding how to make use of it, how to, if you have the internet and have a device, how do you use that to go find a job? That's Miguel Gamino Jr., the executive vice president of enterprise partnerships and head of global cities at MasterCard. He was also the former chief technology officer of New York City and the chief information officer of San Francisco. He explained how access to technology can connect us with resources that determine our economic, health, and other outcomes, all outcomes that can make society more equitable or create wider gaps. I think the unbanked or the financially excluded, if you call them that, is also just in the spotlight, right? Because if 
those people that are unbanked are going to have a lot harder time receiving aid and support, whether that's from the government or from their friends and family, right? If they have to go to a bank branch or to some place to get physical money, that's an exposure. In other words, these things are no longer conveniences, right? Like in the current situation, these things are health safety issues. So I think access to broadband is access to education. It's access to the, to the future of telemedicine. It's access to the future of in, you know, information and work from home opportunities, job opportunities, all those sorts of things are wrapped around this, which many of us take for granted. And, and similarly, financial systems and digital um, economies that many of us take for granted. And the coronavirus pandemic adds a new dimension to the conversation about the digital divide and has made it all the more urgent. Right now with COVID-19, we're acutely seeing how the digital divide could manifest in every facet of life, whether that's people being less able to work from home because they don't have good broadband access or multiple students needing to share, you know, one connected device in a household to all do their education and their homework online and facing deficits that maybe their peers with multiple connected devices don't have or you know, seniors or other populations that might lack the digital literacy to be able to navigate the internet and both stay safe online, but also get vital information about COVID-19 other city services because they might not have the literacy and skills to sort of use those technologies effectively. COVID-19 has highlighted the import of having, you know, a digitally connected city that a lot of cities are accelerating their digital inclusion efforts. I think cities knew this was a problem before COVID-19 and were working to address this problem. But now I think are really ratcheting up those efforts and using new authorities, new partnerships, public-private partnerships and otherwise to really escalate how they can, you know, get households online and get them those devices to be able to be able to go to work and go to school while we're all sort of working and living and educating from home. I asked Gary how the pandemic has changed his day-to-day, and his answer was a little surprising. What's interesting is it didn't really disrupt it that much, which kind of proved that we were working on the right things. Gary became Atlanta's chief information officer right after the city experienced a large cyber attack. So his team spent a lot of time strengthening the city's infrastructure, including in the police, fire, water, transportation and public works departments. A lot of those things were done through like application modernization. But that was like a huge project where we looked at redundancies, what needed to be on prem, what needed to be in the cloud. How did our business continuity you know, program look and did we have the muscle memory when we started to really have the exercises and needed the exercises? Could we just you know, flip? And when it was time to flip for this particular virus, because we had a virus before, right? It was a computer virus. Then it's turned into a human virus. When you start to look at flexibility and the ability to pivot quickly, and making sure that the the things that you are are working on and focused on and, and are investing in have extreme flexibility, have extreme security, and also making sure that the people component that your staff has the right mindset to be able to flip on a dime and really accept change at any moment's notice were areas that we were really focused on. So what does this look like in practice? I just finished a budget session with city council and I think one of the biggest compliments that they could have given was that they said, hey, we felt like we didn't miss, miss a beat. And to be able to 
put something on for them to be able to host city council meetings virtually uh, without much of a hiccup. You know, I would say that that is probably the biggest accomplishment. Elena talked about how other cities are also pivoting during the pandemic. The city of Austin has their program where they're driving school buses that are Wi-Fi connected into neighborhoods that are less sort of digitally connected to help students get online and use internet uh, during the school day to do their education. And, you know, that was a program launched in response to COVID-19. I think another interesting facet where we're seeing the digital divide play out with COVID that's interesting is around community engagement. You know, of course, now where the sort of in-person town hall meeting or public comment session isn't feasible, a lot of cities are moving that engagement online, whether that's live streaming council meetings or enabling public comment online. And I think one potential positive effect of that is, you know, we've heard that in a lot of cities are actually seeing engagement increase significantly. In fact, in Aurora, Illinois, when they held their first virtual city council meeting in March, they attracted more than 200 times the participants than their traditional in-person meetings. And though cities have been forced to adapt and adopt these new technologies under incredibly difficult circumstances, Elaine is optimistic about how they might take hold. So I think there are ways that cities can maybe take the progress they've made during COVID on the digital divide and hopefully beyond the pandemic, think about how they can build on that effort to really create a fully digitally inclusive city. It's clear that when residents can get the most value out of technology, they prosper. And that value is shared across communities and cities. So how can cities ensure that equity is baked into their technological innovation? It first looks like having a shared definition of equity in the city and making sure that everyone within the city is bought in to prioritizing equity and making sure that that's really at the center of decision making. For example, the city of Austin developed an equity assessment toolkit to help guide hiring, budgeting and contracting. They had hundreds of hours of consultations with residents to develop their own toolkit to make sure they're asking the questions and that were most important to residents and that they had sort of understanding of the goal of what an equitable Austin looks like that was shared between government and residents. And so I think that is a great example of how to build that shared understanding. It takes a lot of patient labor, but I think is really worth it in the end. And now the city has all departments uh, in the government of Austin on a sort of two-year equity cycle where they're going through sort of iteratively doing this equity assessment and then learning from that experience and sort of improving over time. For Miguel's work at MasterCard, cross-sector partnerships are key. All cities, all local governments in the world are our you know, potential partners, are our responsibility to find ways to leverage our technology and our partnerships to help them address, you know, the most pressing urban challenges. Relationship building between the public and private sectors are also key for Gary, who created an advisory board for members from government, the public sector and academia to help influence Atlanta's tech innovation agenda. What you're here to do is help us find commonalities across the city of Atlanta to have a really narrow focus on how we can affect the community. That's it. This is community work. And so we'll be talking about how we can, uh, you know, better serve our homeless population, just the areas that we just talked about, about the, the divide. How can we help with crime? You know, how can we be more informative from a data perspective? How can we help with traffic? All of those different areas. So when you have 
you know, one CIO saying, hey, we own 500 miles of fiber in this particular area. And you have another one saying, yeah, well, we own it over here. And we and, you know, you, we can connect this to connect that. All of that started to connect. And so that's really the real focus of that group. And so they provide valuable insight to us around some of the areas that we should really be focusing on and areas that they, their folks, so we're all in alignment is, is really what it is. Such partnerships were key to Gary's prior work too, back when he worked for the DeKalb School District. It was close to a $40 million investment to be able to provide laptops in a school district that has over 100,000 kids, six to 12 for each one of those kids that have a, a device. One of the things that I wanted to disprove was the fact that that kids who who struggle in, in school systems, they call kids, you know, kids who are on free and reduced lunch, kids who don't who um, are in poverty or struggling, that they can't take care of devices. It was almost insulting. And so I can remember really bringing this concept to the Board of Education and really saying, hey, this is how we can fund this and this is how we can sustain it. We were one of the first school districts to really tap into the Sprint One One Million program. This started off with an ask of 200 devices, and they gave it to us. We went back, and they said, "Here, you get 25,000." So, can you imagine being able to take 25,000 of those uh, hotspots, being able to pass those out? The kids were going nuts, and you know, to this day, it's still. I, I believe it's on its third year. They're still r- rolling strong. It was the difference maker between them and every other metro area school district. Elena says nonprofits and community organizations also have a big role to play. Especially thinking about the digital divide, where a number of cities are working hand in glove with nonprofit agencies in order to really reach those communities that are affected by the digital divide to help them get internet access and connected uh, devices. So those, you know, communities that really have those relationships and that groundwork to understand where are the households that are in need and to help cities reach those households more effectively. Um, So those agencies are a critical part of that ecosystem as well. Elena says nonprofits and community organizations also have a big role to play. Elena is working with the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth to explore how cities can use technology to accelerate economic growth in a number of different ways. Whether that's looking at how to measure transportation equity to inform more equitable sort of resource allocation in transportation or looking at how benefits can be delivered more effectively and the role technology can play in benefits delivery or new mobility in cities and how you know cities are adapting to new mobility technology and how that technology can help advance equity in cities by looking at all these different dimensions really helping paint a holistic picture at how technology can be used to accelerate inclusive growth and teasing out some principles and values that cities should really be accounting for when thinking about the role of technology in sort of the modern inclusive city Elena has learned that building the evidence base and sharing best practices is important for cities to innovate equitably and efficiently. A lot of cities, I think, as we were talking about before, are really sort of on the cutting edge of thinking about how to incorporate equity into technology, and especially as technology is changing so rapidly. And so I heard a lot that some cities feel like they're inventing and reinventing the wheel and really want to understand what are the questions that they need to be asking themselves 
when a vendor comes to them and pitches a new technology, what are the questions they should be asking to make sure that they're thinking about uh, equity at every step of that process? Or when they identify a resident problem and think maybe technology can be part of that solution, how can they incorporate technology thoughtfully and equitably? To that end, uh, we're working on creating a framework that will outline those questions and best practices around equitable technology, as well as creating tools, like I mentioned earlier, to help cities really do that equity analysis in a rigorous way. I hope in the next five to 10 years, you know, sort of the discussion of that cities should be really intentional about centering equity is going to be second nature. As always, we want to share some key takeaways from the episode. Here are three things to remember. One, technology is changing fast, which can drive new opportunities for cities, but also pose problems for families who are already marginalized and underserved and exacerbate existing digital divides. Two, cities can intentionally prioritize equity as they incorporate technology into their processes. They can do this by developing a shared definition of equity, engaging community members, forming public-private partnerships to increase equity, and investing in research and sharing information. And three, the pandemic has made tech equity gaps more apparent and also makes it all the more urgent for cities to close them. Cities should look for ways to institutionalize the changes they're making to address tech challenges. So that's our show. Big thank you to Gary Brantley, Miguel Gamino, and Elena Stern. You can read more about the intersection of technology and equity on our show notes page at www.urban.org slash critical value. Support for this episode was provided by a grant from the MasterCard Impact Fund in collaboration with the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth. If you enjoy Critical Value and you want to take advantage of some of your quarantine downtime, why not leave a rating for us and a review on iTunes? We always take five stars and we love hearing your feedback. You can also reach us at criticalvalue at urban.org if you want to send an email. Another big thank you to producers Veronica Gaitan and Jacinth Jones and to Riley Byrne, our sound editor from podigy.co. That's P-O-D-I-G-Y dot C-O. Our music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team and my two co-workers at home. So why are we listening to this podcast? It's because hopefully it was fun funny, interesting, and all those other stuff. I hope you had a good time listening. I love um, DC flags and um, American flags. And I hope you enjoyed the podcast. And um, 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 um.